I've got a question for you. Um, I've got a question for you. How did you become a Christian? How did you become a Christian? Now, I don't, I'm not really asking about the, the time or place that you first started trusting in Jesus. Uh, I'm not asking about who it was that first told you about Jesus. I'm asking, how did you become a Christian? How? Think about it. Think about it. Last week, we learnt that once upon a time, each of us was spiritually dead. Remember that? What did we call it? Uh, total depravity. Only inclined to evil. That's what we were. Only and always sinning. In other words, we were spiritually dead, dead, dead. As dead as doornails. And now look at you. Look at you here tonight. You know, singing your little praises to God and praying to him and here to listen to his word. Here with his spirit indwelling you. Here you are desiring to live his way, looking to obey him. Look at you. You're gorgeous. <laughs> spiritually alive, that's what you are. Spiritually alive, alive and kicking. My question is, how? How? How did that happen? Dead as a doornail, alive and kicking. How? How did you become a Christian? Well, you know what? The Bible tells us that the very first step in you becoming a Christian took place way back before you were born. In fact, the Bible tells us that it took place way back before even Adam and Eve were born. In fact, it tells us that it took place even before the very first atom was created. It took place right back at the beginning of time. Because it was right back at the beginning of time that God first chose you, if you were a Christian. That's the time when he first elected you. Yep, right back at the beginning of time. God chose all those who now call themselves Christians. You take Mary Lou, for example. Okay, I don't know who Mary Lou is, but let's pretend for a moment that Mary Lou is a Christian. Well, you know what? Way back at the beginning of the time, God was there and he thought to himself, you know... I'm going to create for myself Mary Lou. Now, I know that during her lifetime, Mary Lou is going to rebel against me. And I know that during her lifetime, she'll be totally depraved, that she'll be spiritually dead. But you know what? I, God, here at the beginning of time, I choose right now, I choose Mary Lou. I choose that during her lifetime, I will put my Holy Spirit in her, and I will give her new life. I choose to change Mary Lou from being as, as dead as a doornail to being alive and kicking. I choose Mary Lou. And in, same, in the same way that God chose Mary Lou, well, God chose every Christian. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 puts it this way. For God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. Yes, if you are a Christian, then right back at the beginning of time, God chose you. He elected you. But the question is, on what basis did he elect you? On what basis did he choose you? Was it a conditional election or an unconditional election? Here, let me see if I can explain the difference between conditional and unconditional election. 
best way I can illustrate this, I think, is by comparing the way that Beth goes and does our grocery shopping with the way that I used to go and do our grocery shopping. <laughs> the way that we shop is very different. Because, you see, even before Beth leaves home, she already has a detailed list of everything that she needs from the shops, everything that she's going to need that week. And then as she walks down the aisle at the shops, Beth carefully considers the products there on the shelves, making sure that she gets the best uh, price, the best value for money. She looks at the nutritional information on the item, make sure, making sure that it's healthy. She makes sure that the fruit is ripe, that there's no blemishes on it. And so, you see, for Beth, everything that ends up in her shopping trolley has been chosen conditionally. There is something about the items that has persuaded Beth to buy them. The way that she chooses these things, it's an example of conditional election. Now, compare that with the way that I go and do grocery shopping. I can tell you now that none of those factors matter for me. I'm not interested in blemishes. I'm not interested in price. I'm especially not interested in nutritional value. <laughs> no, the only thing that interests me is getting out of that shopping centre as quickly as possible. And so as I walk down the aisle with my shopping trolley, I grab a few things off the shelves, I chuck it into my shopping trolley and I am out of there. There is nothing, no item that ends up in my trolley there's nothing about that item that has persuaded me to buy it. Sometimes I don't even look at the labels. Sometimes I'm not even sure what I bought until I got home. You see, the way that I choose my groceries, it's unconditional. It's an example of unconditional election. Do you get it? Conditional election is where there is something about a thing that persuades us to choose it. Con unconditional election is where there is nothing about that thing that has persuaded us to choose it. So the question again is, when God elected you way back at the beginning of time, was there something about you that persuaded him to choose you? Was it a conditional election or an unconditional election? Well, in the early 1600s, this is one of the questions that people were asking. Up until that point in time, the general consensus among Christians was that no, when God elects people to salvation, there is nothing about them that persuades him to choose them, that he elects people unconditionally. Unconditional election, it works a little bit like this. At the beginning of time, there was God. Here is God, and he is at the beginning of time. There's the rest of history laid out in front of him. Now, you see, even at the beginning of time, God knows every person who will ever live and he knows that they'll all end up spiritually dead totally depraved that's why these people up here are lying on their side they're all spiritually dead they're all destined for hell and so at the beginning of time God chooses some people to save and in this particular understanding that choice is unconditional there is nothing in or of these people that persuades God to choose some over others. They're all exactly the same, spiritually dead. So God chooses or, or elects some and he elects them unconditionally. 
And then as history takes place and these people are born and they live, well then God puts his Holy Spirit into them. He puts his Holy Spirit at some time during their life. He puts his Holy Spirit into the elect, causing them to put their faith in Jesus and they are saved. They're transformed from spiritual death to spiritual life. So you see, at the beginning of time, God made his choice. He chose who he would save and it was an unconditional election. And in the early 1600s, the general consensus among Christians was that this is how God saved people. But at the same time, there was an increasing number of Christians who felt particularly uneasy about this view. In fact, they thought that there were some serious issues with the idea of unconditional election. Essentially, they had three main problems with unconditional election. Firstly, they thought that unconditional election made God out to be a horrible God. I mean, the thought that God would choose some over others on what appeared to be a completely arbitrary basis seems so cold. You know, as though there at the beginning of time, God raced down some shopping aisle and and grabbed a few people off the shelves and threw them into his trolley of salvation, leaving others on the shelf, leaving them to go to hell. So random, so arbitrary. That's what it seemed, as though God just wanted to get out of that shopping centre as quickly as possible, get home and watch the Olympics. For these Christians, they thought that unconditional election made God out to be like a horrible God. Secondly, they thought that unconditional election made God look like he had some kind of multiple personality disorder. They saw verses in the Bible like Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 32 where we read for I take no pleasure in the death of anyone declares the sovereign Lord repent and live now they saw verses like this where God clearly says that he wants everyone to be saved and what then he only chooses some doesn't make any sense does it makes God look like he's got some kind of multiple personality disorder And thirdly, there was the whole issue of human freedom. In unconditional election, it's God who sovereignly chooses some to go to heaven and sovereignly sovereignly overlooks others who will end up in hell. He doesn't ask anybody about what they want in this. It makes us seem like nothing more than, than pawns on a cosmic chessboard. You know, depending on where God moves us, we either end up in heaven or we end up in hell just doesn't seem fair. What about our human freedom to choose? So in the early 1600s, there were some Christians who felt that there were some serious issues with unconditional election. And so what they did is they came up with their own theory. They came up with conditional election. Here's how it works. Like in unconditional election, we all start off spiritually dead. Every person throughout history. But then God, by his Holy Spirit, works in all people. He works in all people everywhere, every single person. His Holy Spirit works in them. He doesn't save them, but he kind of gives every single person a, a small shot of grace in the arm. You know, just enough grace to kind of slightly revive people from spiritual death. 
revive just enough so that now they can make a genuine decision to put their faith in Jesus or not. A genuine choice. Some people do. Some people say, yes, I want to put my trust in Jesus. But others say, no, no, I don't. Now, here's where the theory gets a little bit tricky. Okay, stay with me. Remember, it's way back at the beginning of time that God elects people. But even way back in the beginning of time, God already knows everything that will take place in history. So even way back at the beginning of time, God already knows those who will say yes and those who will say no. And it's on this basis that God, there in the beginning, elects those who he will save throughout history. You get it? In other words, it's a conditional election. He elects those who he knows will put their faith in Jesus. Now, what's really important to note here is that according to those who put, this, who put forward this theory, this is not a salvation based on works. Okay? It is not a salvation based on works. It is a salvation based on faith. People are elected on the basis that they will put their faith in Jesus. That's conditional election. And can you see why it is so appealing? Can you see why this theory is so appealing? No longer is God seen as a horrible, cold, random God. No, now he chooses people with good reason. No longer does he suffer from multiple personality disorder. You know, he does genuinely want everybody to be saved. But he also allows people to choose for themselves. And in this theory, people are truly free. Free to make a genuine choice to be saved, to say yes or to say no. They're not just pawns on a cosmic chessboard. Can you see why the theory of conditional election is so appealing? Unfortunately, there's just one problem with it. It's all wrong. It's all wrong. Because ultimately... It's not what the Bible has to say on the matter of election. So what does the Bible have to say on this matter? Well, as we'll now see, the Bible clearly shows that when it comes to our election, it really is totally unconditional. Let's look together at the Bible now. Let's start with John chapter 10, verse 26. Now, as we read this, notice why it is that some people don't believe in Jesus according to Jesus. We read, Jesus said, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. See what he says? Some people don't believe. Why not? Because they're not his sheep. They're not part of God's flock. They're not the elect. Notice that Jesus doesn't say to these people, you don't believe Therefore, I guess you mustn't be a part of God's flock. No, he says, you don't believe because you are not a part of God's flock. In other words, we are elected and then we have faith. We're not elected because we have faith. All right, let's look at Acts chapter 13, verse 48, where we read, when the Gentiles heard this, that is, when they heard that salvation was also available to them, Uh, When the Gentiles heard this, 
They were glad and honoured the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Did you get that? All who were appointed for eternal life believed. Notice that it doesn't say that all who believed were appointed to eternal life. Now it says all those who were appointed to eternal life believed. In other words, faith comes after we're elected to eternal life. So faith can't be the basis on which we're elected. All right then, let's think about Romans chapter 9 verses 13 to 16, which explains the unconditional election of Jacob over Esau. We read, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And listen to this. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort but on God's mercy. You see, Romans 9 out and out denies conditional election. Not even our desire to be saved or not saved factors in when God chooses those who he will save. What does it say? It does not depend on a man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Conditional election, it's unbiblical and it is therefore wrong. And ultimately, I believe that it is a great error for anyone to believe that conditional election is not ultimately a salvation by works. For ultimately, I believe that what this theory does is turn faith into a work. Because in conditional election, faith is now something by which we can persuade God. Did you notice that? No matter how much the people who hold on to conditional election, would sincerely deny that. Ultimately, the theory is a salvation by works. Compare conditional election to what we read in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, where we read of how God has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. There you go. We're not saved because of anything that we have done. No, not even our faith. Or take Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9, where we learn that even the faith that we do have has come to us as a gift from the sovereign God. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. There you go. We can't even say that our faith, the faith that we have in Jesus, we can't even say that it has come from ourselves. Now, ultimately, even it is a gift from God. So you see, the idea in conditional election that somehow we're revived from total depravity to then freely choose for ourselves to believe or not, it's a furphy. Because ultimately, even our faith is a gift from God. You see, when we consider what the Bible has to say on the matter of election, we can't help but conclude that God really does choose us unconditionally. Conditional election, just, it just doesn't hold water. And that's why in the early 1600s, at the Synod of Dort in Holland, uh, that official meeting of church leaders, that's why there too, 
they decided that when God elects us, he does so unconditionally. It was one of the five declarations that were made at that meeting. It's the you in TULIP that we've been, we're studying over these five weeks. The you stands for unconditional election. Yes, unconditional election, it's biblical and true. But what then are we to make of those problems that some people seem to have with unconditional election? What are we going to do with them? The problem of the horrible God who has multiple personality disorder, who takes away our human freedom. What are we, what are we to make of these problems? Well, actually, when we think about them, I don't think they're problems at all. Firstly, consider with me the claim that unconditional election makes God out to be a horrible God. You know, a, a cold God who randomly chooses some people and overlooks others. You know, how can God choose some and not others? Well, actually, friends, I think that's, I think that's the wrong question to be asking. The question shouldn't be, why does God choose only some of us? The question really should be, why does God choose to save any of us at all? Remember, Christian, you were dead in your sin. Dead, dead, dead. Totally depraved, totally opposed to God. You, you were hell-bound. But as amazing as it seems... God has chosen some of us to have eternal life with him, to be in relationship with him. How amazing that is. Now we really are alive and kicking, living for God, heaven bound. And, and this 100% his choice, not yours, not mine. No, we didn't do a single thing to deserve it. We didn't even mutter the word yes. And as far as I'm concerned, that's wonderful. That's true grace. And for me, that makes unconditional election one of, the, one of the finest, one of the warmest, one of the most joyous teachings in all of the Bible. What's more, the Bible never once, never even hints that God chooses us in some cold, random fashion. No, look with me at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, where we read, For God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Whatever reason it was that God chose me, it was not arbitrary. No, there was no, of course, there was nothing in me that persuaded God to choose me. But nor was it an arbitrary choice. No, it was according to his love, to his good purpose, to his good pleasure that God chose me. A cold, horrible God? Well, that's not the God that I see in these verses. So what then of the problem of God's apparent multiple personality disorder? You know what I mean. He wants all people to be saved and then at the same time he only elects some to be saved. 
Well, to answer this question, I think what we need to do is distinguish between God's general desire and his specific will. You see, God's general desire really is that all people be saved. But his specific will is that some are not. And if that sounds just a little bit weird or alien to you, actually, it's not, it's not as strange as you might at first think. In fact, we do it all the time. You take my mother, for example. Now, my mother's general desire for me as I was growing up was that I wouldn't be sick, that I wouldn't get sick. She would tell me, Warren, don't eat the whole block of chocolate. Did I listen to my mother's warning? Well, sadly, no. I ate the entire block of chocolate and yes, as you can guess, at the end I ended up very, very sick. The thing is, my mother watched me as I ate that block of chocolate. She could have stopped me, but she didn't. Because you see, at that point, her specific will was to let me do what I wanted to do. So her general desire and her specific will, they were different. Do you get it? Well, in the same way, God's general desire is that people do not go to hell. But sometimes his specific will is to give them what they want. There's no multiple personality disorder here. What then of the third problem that some people have with unconditional election? The problem that it seems to contradict human freedom. That God doesn't ask anybody what they want. That we appear to be just pawns on a cosmic chessboard. Well, actually, I think this understanding couldn't be further from the, from the truth. Because when it comes to unconditional election, the fact is, everybody gets what they want. Let me put this in the most blunt way I possibly can. Nobody goes to hell against their will. Nobody ends up in hell against their will. Now, please don't hear me wrong as I say that. No one who does end up in hell likes being there. No, they don't. Of course they don't. It's the place where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. No one could possibly ever like being in hell. But for the totally depraved, there is one thing worse than hell. And that's the thought of repenting of sins and the thought of loving God and others more than themselves. The totally depraved would much rather stay in hell than be with God in heaven forever. You see, they get exactly what they want. Nor, should we point out, is any elected person dragged kicking and screaming into heaven either. I'm yet to meet a Christian who hates God and doesn't want to go to heaven and be with God forever. If you come across one, you'll let me know, won't you? And we'll understand more about why that's the case when we look at irresistible grace in a couple of weeks' time. Now, when it comes to unconditional election, everybody gets what they want. It doesn't contradict human freedom at all. So the problems that some Christians have had over the years with the concept of unconditional election, actually, when you think about them, they're not really problems at all. Which leads us then to ask our final question for tonight. Why does unconditional election matter? Why does it matter? At the end of the day, is this really nothing more than just 
some kind of intellectual, theological debate. At the end of the day, who really cares? Come on, let's face it. Well, actually, friends, I think there is very good reason for us as Christians not only to hold on to this idea as biblical and true, I think there's also really good reason for us to cherish the reality of unconditional election. I think there's a whole bunch of reasons why that's the case. But unfortunately, um, I've only got time tonight to tell you two. Firstly, imagine for a moment, imagine for a moment that conditional election was really true. You know, that God revived you from spiritual death so that you could make a choice to put your faith in Jesus or not. So that you could, you'd have a choice to put your faith in the saving work of Christ at the cross. Imagine for a moment that were true. Well, if it were, then as a Christian, you'd have every reason to be extremely grateful, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? But now suppose that in addition to being grateful to Christ for dying on the cross for you, you also realised that you would never have loved Jesus unless he first loved you. That you would never have chosen him unless he had first chosen you and by the Holy Spirit had given you your faith, that faith that you have in him. Then surely you would love him all the more, wouldn't you? Surely your thanks would be greater for you have all the more to be thankful to him for. Surely your determination to live a better life would be all that much greater because you have all that much more to thank him for. Friends, how good God is not only to forgive us from our sins but also to give us that faith in Christ that we have so that we may take hold of that forgiveness that he offers. Yes, how good God is. Our hearts ought to be filled with thankfulness for God's unconditional election of us. And secondly and finally, imagine if at the end of the day our salvation really did depend upon our own free will to accept Christ or not. What a miserable situation that would be. You know, think of it. Whether we stay Christians or not now depends on us. What a frightful thought. Salvation depending on us who by very nature are rotten and do not love God. You know, I, I believe today, but what about tomorrow? Maybe, maybe tomorrow I'll stop believing. Maybe, maybe next week I'll, I'll give in to those sinful desires that I've got rather than being true to Christ. What if, what if? What a miserable situation to be in for anyone who thinks that in the final analysis his faith depends fundamentally on himself. But friends, we know, we know that unconditional election is biblical and true. That our salvation depends 100% on God and nothing of ourselves. We know that Christ not only died for our sins, but that also God is the one who gives us that faith that we have to believe it. How reassuring it is. How reassuring it is, because in addition we know that as Philippians 1 verse 6 says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, unconditional election really matters because ultimately it gives us the joy 
and the comfort of a salvation that places its confidence in God himself rather than in ourselves and our own faith. And so I finish this evening by saying, Christian, cherish your unconditional election, won't you? Yes, cherish it. And be sure to praise God for it, won't you? Praise him for his loving, unconditional election of you. Praise God for his unconditional election of miserable sinners like us. Yes, praise him. Praise him. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you so much for the joy and the comfort that comes from the knowledge that in the beginning you chose us and you chose us unconditionally. Our Father, we do thank you that it shows to us your, your grace and your mercy so clearly. We praise you for saving miserable sinners like us, for choosing us, not because there was anything in us that persuaded you to choose us, but on account of your awesome love and your own good purpose and pleasure. Lord, in the light of our salvation in Christ, that salvation that you have so freely given us, Father, we ask that you would help us to respond with thanks and praise and with lives that really are dedicated to living for you. For we pray it in our Saviour's name. Amen.